everybody, and welcome to Free Will with Cardin Podcast. I'm your host, Cardin Wyckoff, wheelchair warrior and disability advocate based in ATL, Georgia. On this podcast, we believe in creating an accessible world strengthened by supportive allies to build inclusion and belonging. We share stories from people with various disabilities and help to break down barriers for the disability community. I'm working diligently to expand the network of disability allies, but I need your help in spreading the word. Your rating and review on Apple Podcasts pushes this content out to others who are either facing similar experiences or just want to know more about disability culture because they didn't learn it in their formative years. So please rate and review, subscribe and follow this podcast and share it with a friend. Download iAccess Life. It's a mobile app that rates and reviews places on the built environment to break down barriers and transparency on the bathrooms, the interior, parking, and any time that you go into a new place. You can find iAccess Life, the mobile app on Google Play and the Apple App Store. Use referral code CARDIN, my name, when signing up. I'm hosting a disability etiquette training on Monday. And you can find that on Eventbrite. I'm also partnering up with iAccess Life to do that. So if you search iAccess Life on Eventbrite, you can sign up for my disability etiquette and inclusivity training for the service industry. So look forward to seeing you join. Today's guest is Kriga Skobort. He was born and raised in Cape Town, South Africa. He was an all-around sportsman, excelling in athletics, athletics, rugby, squash, and surfing. In 1987, Kriga lost both his legs during a military skirmish in Angola. However, he is a rock star and is a six-time Paralympian, a four-time world champion, a two-time Paralympic medalist, and the number of awards and recognitions go on for a very long time. So he's really awesome and a really competitive and great athlete. He's also the founder of Able Sport, which creates racing chairs and equipment for other athletes. And currently he's in Georgia with his wife and kids. Look forward to talking all about Paralympics and his experience with it and where it can go to be better and more inclusive. All right, enjoy. All right. Well, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining. How's it going? I'm very well. How are you doing? I'm well, I'm well, and thankful to have you on here. And we can talk all about Paralympic sports and overcoming barriers and challenges having disabilities. Both you and I know that very well. So I'll give you the floor and you can share your story. Hey, well, thanks for having me on on your podcast, on your show. And I've told my story many, many times over and over. I think by this time I know the ins and outs of it. I have the long version and a short version, so I'll I'll try not to keep it too long (laughs) and too boring, but I have some good stories in between. So I don't know if you can notice, I've got an accent, a little bit of a different accent. I'm not your typical Southern boy. I'm Southern, but Southern Africa. I'm from South Africa originally, born and raised in Cape Town. Okay, so Cape Town is the kind of the lowest you know, furthest south city in, in Africa, big city in Africa. And uh, I grew up where the Atlantic Ocean and the Indian Ocean meet and uh, all the mountains and everything are right there. So 
you know, in, in Africa, in South Africa, our school system was only elementary and high school. Yeah, you have, you know, your elementary, middle and high. So I went in my town, you know, one school to another school and that was it. No, no big jumps, no moves around from one city to the other. My parents was just kind of happy where they were. And I was very happy because I could be at the beach most of the time, me and my two older brothers. So I used to grow up, grow up surfing. Surfing oh, nice. was my passion. Yeah, surfing was my passion. So I finished my school years and all boys in that time had to join the military. So I after had to jump on the train and go do basics and do my military service. Did that, finished that. What an experience it was. And then I came back home and I started, I went to college, started a civil engineering at the Cape Town College. Then uh, during my time as a student, the country was still very much in war. And so you had to do still, had to, you know, if they call you, you have to go. And I got a, a papers in the mail, no emails those years, that was in the 80s. So I got papers in the mail, you have to be ready, climb and, uh, and do a three-month camp. And that was during that time frame. In 1987, when I was in a military skirmish and uh, the enemy jets flew over us and they dropped their bombs. And one of the bombs, unfortunately, fell real close to me, close enough actually to, you know, um, so I lost my legs there, right there. Luckily, not on my head, so I'm still alive. <laughs> but, you know, I, you know, according to doctors, I should have been dead. But... I'm still alive, and I guess I'm here to tell my story to you, to you guys. And then during my time, I know it's no, there's no the more the compact story. So a lot happened in, in between. So during my time in rehab, my OT, my occupational therapist, she was very adventurous because she could also see this guy. He wanted to do things. You know, I just wanted to. I was so happy to be alive. You know, so I was ready to do anything what's out there and you know tackle any challenge. So we went to all the sporting kind of events, like basketball and uh, swimming and a track event. And when we went to the track event, that's when I saw the first racing chairs. The guys going around the track doing a fifteen the mile or whatever they did. But I just I told her. I remember I told her. Not, that is, that's what I wanted to do. But I kept playing basketball and I swam and uh, I went to track events. I mean, uh, um, not track events. I went to little running events like 5Ks and fun runs. So I always just did it in my everyday wheelchair, my hospital chair, basically. So I kept going with it, had fun with it, but always, you know, waiting for that opportunity to get a racing chair. And then it was just somehow uh, someone in my community it was an engineering company. They said, well, we see you out here all the time trying to race runners and, and your everyday wheelchair. Maybe we can build you something. And uh, so they built me a racing chair from bottom up and uh, no experience. Didn't really know what we wanted to. Didn't really have an end goal as well, as long as we had four wheels and it can go faster than an everyday wheelchair. <laughs> so... The final part of the racing chair was being made at uh, actually at another company, the fabrication engineering company. And uh, I was on the way to a marathon, my first marathon ever. And uh, we still had to pick up the steering of the racing chair. So I haven't even been in the racing chair. Here we're going to a marathon. 
and we don't have the steering. So we stopped at the, at the, at the shop, picked up the steering, drove, I think it was like a thousand kilometers, say 700 miles or whatever, all the way inland to do this marathon, got there. I put everything together and I used uh, uh, my, my, the seat cushion that I used for the racing chair was one of the, the, the chairs in the hotel room's cushion. And I <laughs> was the funniest thing. I used that cushion for a long time, actually. And uh, so I jumped in a chair and the, and the guys laughed at me and they said, you're never going to finish that marathon. And I probably also thought, you know, I'm not going to finish this marathon because you know, I went zigzag over the road. But somehow I finished it and it was uh, it was one of those days that, you know, I promised myself, I just want to finish this race, get it done with and never, ever do anything like this anymore. You know, and, you know, you get, you're done and you lick your wounds and you feel sorry for yourself, but then you go back again. And now I've done hundreds of marathons and I'm still, I'm still <laughs> stupid enough to do more. So basically that's how my, my, how I landed in a chair and how I start from being a walker and a runner to a wheeler and a racer in a wheelchair. Nice. And thank you so much for sharing your story. It sounds like very similar as, you know, there's bumps in the road and you figure out a way to get around that. You laugh at yourself, but sometimes you're just like, should I really be doing what I'm doing? And then you realize that it sounds like it became a passion and a career of yours and turned it into a company. So that's really cool. What are some, I guess, a question that you, that you kind of answered is, you know, that's how I landed in a chair. And I feel I get this a lot because I'm also a wheelchair user. A lot of people will ask me, you know, why are you using a wheelchair? And I haven't met them before. How do you usually respond to people? Well, there's this... Uh, uh, it depends, of course, who asks, right? Mm -hmm. If it's the, the kid in the elevator, uh, say a five or six-year-old kid in the elevator, and he, and he would point at me and, Mom, he doesn't have legs, right? Like that. And uh, the mom would go, Johnny, don't, don't say anything. Be, <laughs> be nice. <laughs> you, you know exactly what I, you know, what, you know, kids oh, are yeah. curious. Oh, yeah. Kids so, are curious and they have yeah, no filter. <laughs> they are very curious. And, and there's no filter, yes. And, and when, it's, when, when that happens, I'm usually very, very wide open because I don't want to put the, the, the parent or the kid in the bad spots. Oh, no, you know, I just tell them exactly. I don't have any, any legs because I was an accident. I don't tell details or anything. I wasn't an accident. And uh, so, but, you know, now I use wheels for legs. And uh, look, you know, how do you like my racing wheelchair? But, you know, a lot of times they want to see your leg. Where, where is your leg still? So it's, uh, it's, it's just a situation you have to handle as, as informative, but not overwhelming to someone. But when it's someone, you know, when I'm at an event or, you know, and there's adults and someone asks me, you know, I'll, I'll give them a little bit more detail because then it's a little bit more of a formal conversation. So, yeah, it's, it's always interesting how people react when, when you tell them what happened too, you know, when I say it was a bomb explosion. <gasps> really, you know, but uh, no, I've got a lot of stories as well, you know, like a line story and people love the line story because I'm from Africa as well. That's a great story. Um, but you tell them that your uh, legs so, got yeah. eaten by a lion? Uh-huh. Yes. That's, oh, and that's... They, do they believe you? 
Well, yeah, in America, <laughs> actually, a lot of people in do America in they do. Yes, 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 yes. We are yes. so because gullible. I think it's Africa, you know, because I'm from Africa, and I think you know Africa is wild, and animals are all over. And uh, the story is always that the lion, um, I uh, a little hut in the in my you know my backyard was my house was a hut. And I had two lines of pets, and uh, oh my all the lines came with to, to our uh, night camping. And the lines, me and my friend were together, and uh, the lines came with us. And um, as I, you know, camped around the fire that night, I woke up, and then my two lines ate my friend, and they were halfway busy with me. Oh my goodness. And boy, and I lost my temper, and I gave the line a backhand like this, and I lost my left index finger. And as I hit the lion in the face, he grabbed my left index finger and he ran away and I never saw the, saw the lions again. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the story that people, some people really believe it, you know. And that, oh, I bet. You know, they can't believe, you know, <laughs> wall. And then some people would laugh, you know, some people would laugh. But that's the lion story. And it's, it's, it's a better story than the, the bomb story. But, you know, <laughs> yeah. I like the lion story. It sounds Yeah, new. the lion story is cool. It sounds legit. Like I probably would be gullible enough to to believe. Yeah, well, it. in in all honesty, in uh, nineteen nineteen ninety two, I still lived in South Africa, and we were at the Olympic trials in New Orleans. So it was me and my Dutch friends from Holland and Belgium. We were in the train. I mean, in the bus, and there were some students. You know, students in the bus. There was two or three girls. And they asked us where we, because they heard us talk, where are you all from? And they said, they're from Belgium and Holland. And I said, I'm from South Africa. And when I, asked, I said Africa, one of the girls said, wow, from Africa, do you really live in little huts in Africa? And then that's how it starts. I immediately just spun the story about, yes, I have a wonderful little hut in Africa and da, 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 the lion. So that's how it started. And they believed it. I mean, they swallowed it. Oh, just had, yeah. <laughs> that is so great. Oh my goodness. People, that is so funny. Well, I mean, the way that Africa is pictured and painted and portrayed over in America is it's just a bunch of wild animals and people are running savage yeah. like ravages and savages around everywhere and and that there's a lot of war and there's a lot of famine and kids yeah. that are starving and like that's all of Africa mm. is that's what how we yeah. were kind of brought yeah. up and that's far yeah. from the truth and there's a lot of very yeah. well developed cities mm-hmm. um yeah, and, and if you take the you know the, those days oh excuse me oh go ahead, those go ahead. Da- oh okay no those days there was no internet now, nowadays Google can tell you anything, but in the late early early nineties there was no there was no Google. So whatever you hear from me is that's the truth. Or a magazine. <laughs> or you have to go there yourself. Yeah. Can you kind of describe to me a little bit about what accessibility was like decades ago? I'm I just turned 28, so I was born into being protected by the Americans with Disabilities Act and the built environment. I would say a good portion of it has ramps and elevators, and it still is problematic, but I would say I'm much better off than some other people like in mm. previous decades. You know, how how were those challenges growing up? 
Well, you know, if if you compare the U.S. to Europe or Africa even more, um, and it was always you felt like a king coming to the U.S. because the accessibility was always so much better here than anywhere else, or even Asia was also tricky, and and you know everything is small, the cars are small, the the buildings are small, and in Europe it's um, the, the History of of you know if you build a home it's different you know, and you make it accessible for you but if you go downtown in Germany or whatever city and there's beautiful old buildings all the restrooms are downstairs you know you have to find another way or another place and they don't you know cater for wheelchairs as it's like here and that was the same in in South Africa it was just more third world and uh, changed a lot and it's a lot, whole lot better now but. Those days, you know, often you had to go, you know, maybe you find a ramp, but then you make up this ramp and then a little bit further down the line, there's three steps. So it wasn't always with the best planning and uh, or you go to a place with a, with a restroom that the door is uh, accessible bathroom, but the doors are too so tight, you cannot close the door almost behind you. And the mirror is about three feet above your head. <laughs> So, so you know you kind of you know clean yourself well. So it was it was definitely uh, you know to me being in a wheelchair late eighties to early nineties late eighties when I had my accident. I thought you know it just had to be like that. And then when I started traveling here early nineties, that's when I realized no, it didn't have to be like that. Things could be different. And then you realize. How much more you you, uh, you know uh, society should do to make you know make it more convenient for folks in wheelchairs. Interesting. And how do you think that the perception of dis- people with disabilities has changed for non-disabled people? So how they view you, how they look at you. Do you feel like it's gotten better, worse, or the same? No, definitely better. Yeah, I, I absolutely. I think you know much to do with visibility. People should come out and be out. You know, in some countries, if you're in a wheelchair, it's it's so inaccessible that you're not all people don't see you. So the more accessible it is, the more out you are, the more people will get to someone in a wheelchair. So in that respect, you know, since the early late '80s, early '90s. It changed dramatically how people see you. And um, like yesterday, I was at uh, in, in Stone Mountain. We and had my Paralympic T-shirt on for the U.S. team. And the guy, he didn't see me as a guy in a wheelchair. He said immediately, man, you were in the Olympics. That's awesome. What did you do in the Olympics? So oh, cool. he, he missed the whole, whole, whole thing of the wheelchair. It was just to be mm-hmm. for him to see this guy went to the Olympic Games. Mm. Um, those days it will be you know different they don't they see the people in the chair not what's behind it Mm. that's a that's so beautiful to see that people are and obviously there there was a contacts clue there right you're wearing a a paralympic either uniform or shirt or something and that people associate the games Mm -hmm. as being this Mm -hmm. really amazing event. And I watched the documentary, uh, what was it like rising Phoenix or something about Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. creation of the Paralympics and the history behind it. Yeah. 
and the mm-hmm. obstacles that they faced and just the representation. And um, yeah. that kind of gets me into the next question is because you were in the Paralympics and what was that like? And how how are you still treated as a Paralympic compared to an Olympic athlete? You know, going, I've been to six games. My first one was in Barcelona and then it was 90, 92 and then Bar- uh, Atlanta in 96. Then uh, Sydney in 2000. That's when we moved here from South Africa between the Atlanta games and the Sydney games. And then I went to Greece and then I missed Beijing because of, uh, you know, too long out of South Africa and not a citizen year yet. But then I got my citizenship, so I made it for two more games, London and uh, Rio. So the first games was just amazing. It was it was fantastic because, you know, then you're not used to anything like this. And then all of a sudden, yeah, you are almost 10,000 athletes together in a village from each and every country you can think of in perfect harmony and peace and, and uh, eat together and you race together, and um, yeah, it was just you know an experience that I will always feel like is one of those the top feelings I've ever ever experienced. Especially also the difference between a small country and a big country. Uh, South Africa, we were eleven total in the team, including the my first games. Now that was including the the staff, so the team manager and. All the athletes, 11. And we, you know, those years, we got a, we got a an outfit or a track suit or your kit, and we got little flags, and we had to sew the, the flags on ourselves. <laughs> so, you know, it's it's now you, you qualify for the games. So now you treat it as Olympian. Those right. years, you were still treated as a Paralympian. Mm-hmm. But now it's so different. I mean, you get exactly the same as the Olympic athletes, the same kit. And um, it's a world of difference. It's a world of difference. And of course, you know, going from a small team to the U.S. team where we were, gee, I think I think we were maybe 300 or so only for track and field on the team on Team U.S. where we were 11 for the whole team. You know, in South Africa, so big team, small team. You feel like a little bit more of a number which is not as cool as a small team because in a small team you stand out, doesn't know who you are. But, you know, to be part of the U.S. team was, you know, that was uh, it was just quite something. I never thought I would be part of Team USA. And, yeah, but definitely um, your question was, how do, you, how do people see the difference between Paralympics and Olympics? It's coming, it's coming closer, real close actually now. And uh, that's, good. that's good to see, real good to see. Yeah, because in the movie, I think it was in Rio where they, at the last minute, the budgeting or whatever that was supposed to go to the Paralympic Games, they moved it over to the Olympic Games and there was like a huge uprising about it. And then I heard a lot of stories about just access, uh, access issues in Rio for those Olympic and Paralympic Games. Did you find that to be the case? It was like your. I just read news stories of you know your hotels weren't accessible or to get into the stadium, whatever wasn't accessible, something like that. Yeah. Well, no, I no, no. no that okay. that was. I know. I know there was issues with uh, with the funding. Yes, I know that pulled out right before the games, and then that to. <laughs> 
can't remember the, <laughs> the details there, but that, was, that wasn't great. Luckily, I didn't even know about that until after the games. Okay. So that was cool. But I, as a, as a Paralympian, uh, our, you know, it wasn't five star, but the access, there was, it was accessible. Okay, no, there was good. there wasn't any place I wanted to go that I couldn't go, and that was that was good. It was you know every every village has its obstacles, mm-hmm. and every country has its obstacles. And uh, Brazil was great. It wasn't as maybe as you know as fluent as I would say. Um, Sydney was quite amazing actually, the Sydney yeah. Games, but you know it was still highlight. It was still amazing. Cool. Yeah. It's- that's good to hear that you had a great experience and it's good to see her here as well that the gap is is closing in, right? How this mm. same level of representation and quality and value and just how people see the Paralympics and the Olympics, mm. they're looked at equally. I know a lot of people say... They talk about the, the word Paralympics and some people don't like it because they think it you know, cast out disabled people where some people like the word Paralympic. And what I remember in the movie, it was saying like Paralympic. It it has it didn't even have to do with disability. It had to do with just I don't remember the exact term, but what are what are your thoughts on the term Paralympic? And well, I uh, absolutely yes. Yes, yes. I I you know I don't feel like I see some people that in the Paralympics, they do the Olympic circles on their, like a tattoo. Now, mm. I'm very proud of the, the Paralympic teardrops or the water drops with the different colors. And, um, and the Paralympics actually originate from parallel to the Olympics. Parallel, um, there we go. So it's not, yeah. yeah, parallel to Olympics. So it's not anything to do with a paraplegic or whatever it's it, i think the connotation unfortunately is there for for being para, you know paraplegic but you know there are very few paraplegics at the at the games actually mm-hmm. not very few there are a lot but you know there's a small smaller percentage compared to people with a vision or amputees or any other kind of disability so that's why it's called parallel to the olympic games nice where do you have any other visions for where the Paralympic Games should go or where you see them going in terms of you know closing the gap or more representation, anything of that nature? Well, it's yes, the, you know for, from an athlete standpoint, it, it's been tough for for athletes to stay in a division. you know that's the tricky part of, of the Paralympics because each and every athlete has to be classified into a division. Like for instance, I'm a track athlete, but there are four categories on the track. And uh, so I know if you have four ca- categories on the track and for each category you have a distance that you're going to run, like the 100 meters, 200 meters, the 400, 800, it's Excuse me. It's very hard to have all that events, mm-hmm. and in such a short amount of time, you know, because you have four times a hundred meters and four times a five thousand meters or whatever. So, unfortunately, at the Paralympic level, they are taking away a lot of events just because there are not enough time for those events. So, it's almost like there's not enough 
distance events and there's not enough sprinting events mm. for each category or each division. That is one thing. And the other, I would say, is getting closer in... I, I, I would say if, if they are a little bit better TV, television... Mm footage of the of our games not you know live footage mm. that will be awesome because that is something that a lot of people miss i know some countries do great in it unfortunately still here in the u.s they lag a little bit uh nbc a lot of the events will be nighttime events or it would be so nighttime year not daytime in life where even some of the the smaller countries they have you know maybe one or two stations you know dedicated to the games and more uh, visibility for for all the events. And you can, you know, don't have to, you know, get up in the middle of the night to watch something. Um, right. Yeah. Or watch a recording of it or something. Right? Yeah. yeah. That's not yeah, an yeah. equal playing field. So, no, thanks for kind of sharing a little bit of the insider of what your experience has been and what you envision for what we can do better and kind of tangenting. So you originally were talking about how you kind of jury-rigged this chair with a cushion from a hotel and created your first wheelchair racing. And, and now you've gone on to creating your company, Able Sport, to create racing chairs. And so do you want to talk a little bit about that and why you decided to create that company? Well... In my early years, I traveled to Europe and I went there for six months just to race before Barcelona, before the Barcelona Games in 1992. Actually, in 1991. And then in 1992, I qualified, went to the Games. But when while I was in Barcelona, I mean, in Europe for that six months, I got a sponsorship from a German company to race their chairs. And out of that, I started to sell their racing chairs in South Africa, just because there wasn't enough going on, you know, we, we had to make sure of our own thing. So there was an opportunity for me, both sides, to be an athlete and also deal with the equipment. And during that time, our currency was not, you know, very stable and strong. So I started making, fabricating and making racing chairs with my brother in South Africa. Until we moved here in 1997, my wife and I, and then here I got a uh, started with a sponsorship again with a uh, US company, and then now I don't know how many years, maybe almost 18 years later, when I finally decided, okay, I'm not going to race so much anymore. I'm done racing. I'm going to focus more on equipment. Equipment is actually my passion. Racing would be my passion, right? But as part of the racing, equipment is also my 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 passion. I love working on equipment and having nice equipment. And uh, three after the Rio Games in 2016, I started dealing with equipment, the company that used to sponsor me, selling their equipment. And I did my coaching certification for triathlon. Yeah, as a USA certified coach, but that didn't stay so, I, I mean, I wasn't really so much into that. Although I love working with athletes, I, I started staying more towards the, the, the equipment side again. And then during the COVID time last year, I realized, you know, there's not much business going on. And that's when I started to manufacture again my own equipment. And I started with equipment that 
people would need during during the COVID time. And my focus was to get something to keep you active. And so I started making training rollers. So you have your racing chair, you put it on a training roller, and there you go. You can train on the rolling, like a bicycle roller or a, um, a static you know, treadmill or whatever. So from there, I started doing more and more. And now I'm, you know, it really keeps me busy. So I, the, the sales on equipment is coming back now again. And now I really have my hands full because now people want to buy racing chairs and rollers and other things like a travel box. I started making a travel box in 2019 for your racing chair when you fly. That also died during COVID. No one, no one was traveling. Right. Now all of a sudden, I've got you know a lot of a, a whole lot. I'm having fun with it. There's nothing better. But um, I keep my boys. I have a 17 and a 19 year old. I keep them busy. They've been working for me all day today. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's spring, it's spring, spring break. So okay, uh, that's, put them to work. Yeah, that. <laughs> they had a couple of days off, and uh, but today and tomorrow they're working for me. So I'm back in the equipment, and the uh, able sport is is growing. That's awesome. That's great to hear for your business. And you found an, a new interest in an area based out of necessity, and also with the current times, right? You were able to change and come up with a new thing to keep people active. So that's a that's a strong mindset, no doubt. You talked about a box for traveling, and we probably both know very well that traveling using a wheelchair, it's oftentimes that the wheelchair gets damaged on the plane. And so is what how how does this box protect the the racing chair? Yeah, okay, that's um, a travel really chair. Okay, the, the, <laughs> yeah, that's a that's quite a big topic. The, the reason why I actually start really thinking about the travel box in 2019 during that year i sold a lot of chairs to the airlines and that was racing chairs that got damaged and i always felt so bad you know a racing chair that it's totally you, you can prevent it if you just have the right equipment so i designed a box that's out of a extremely high density foam it's carved by a cnc machine uh, exactly the size of the racing chair, which is a standard box. You know, most frames are about the same size. They get a little bit wider, a little bit narrow. So I have a box. Um, at, it's actually the name of my travel box is called a race case. So the race case is designed very tight to the size of a regular racing chair. And so it's a high-density foam with the lid. And inside, there's straps that hold the chair down. And it's also covered with, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of Linex. Linex is a material they spray on the back of a truck to protect the bed of a truck. So the foam is covered with Linex. So it's extremely hard and durable. You can still puncture it, but at least, you know, when you travel, your chair will be safe. The box can, tra- the box can, can damage, but you want to go to an event and arrive there and have a chair because I've been myself to events where I arrived to a race, you're excited, you cannot wait to enter the race. And then, you know, what do you do if your chair is bent or your wheels are damaged or whatever? Definitely. There's nothing worse than that feeling of you're losing your freedom or your ability to go and just 
you know, assimilate into whatever country or city that you're in. So I know all about that. I was looking at it as well. It kind of looks just like a um, an ironing board. That's yeah, kind of like yes, the shape yes. that it reminds me of. Um, yep. Mm-hmm. Well, cool. We talked about a lot of topics and always can just chat more. But if you have any follow-up or last-minute thoughts of anything else that you want to share, and we can wrap up. Uh, well, I think no. I think we we covered basically everything. I uh, one thing I can say is is you know being in a wheelchair is not really so much what happened to you, but it's more what you make of what happened to you. Mm. And uh, I think if if you can have that mindset, it will help a lot. You know, you can you can do a lot. And uh, I feel like you know keeping pushing, keep pushing forward, and make the best of whatever circumstance. It's a good mindset for everyone. Those are good parting thoughts. Are there any books, podcasts, TV things that you recommend to those that want to learn more about the disability community or, or what you're working on? Yeah, not off the top of my head, but uh, if I ever do come over something, I'll, I'll let you know. <laughs> okay, sounds good. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for having me, uh, Cardin. I appreciate it. And uh, I find uh, reliving my, my own stories. And that was good, good questions you had. Thank you. All right. Take care. Thank you, friends, for listening. Please rate and follow this podcast or text Cardin at 470-588-1215 with comments and suggestions. Tune in next week for another disability topic.